There are many psalms that, although they were written centuries before Jesus was born, they speak prophetically about his life and his work. And this 22nd psalm is one that falls into that category. And I'm sure as I read it, you saw that there are two very main divisions. It opens with that appalling cry of pain, this cry of anguish. A man, a righteous man, surrounded by evil powers and at his hour of greatest need, feeling that God has forsaken him. But then it concludes with that shout of joy and triumph as he realizes that his sufferings have not been pointless after all. God has heard his cry. His sufferings, in fact, have got wide-ranging implications with an impact that reaches to the ends of the earth. Now, we don't know just what particular historical event and experience caused the psalmist to write this prophetic psalm. But what we do know from that reading from Matthew in the New Testament is that Jesus took that cry of pain on his lips as he hung on the cross. And it would seem that the words of this psalm that predicted his sufferings and his ultimate glory were running through his mind as he hung on the cross and may indeed have been about all that he had to hang on to as he clung there. This morning we were talking about Peter's epistle and I said that glory and suffering are themes that recur again and again and Peter in 1 Peter 1.11 says that through the prophets the Spirit of God was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And that's precisely what we've got here in those two sections. This first section verses 1 through to 21 and the one on which I'm going to concentrate dominated by that opening verse my God, my God why have you forsaken me? This cry of dereliction. And then that second section which begins there at verse 22 and goes through to the end where the tone changes. It's a wonderful shout of joy. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. Verses 23, 24, praise the Lord for he has not despised and he has not disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has listened to his cry for help. And then verse 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied and those who seek the Lord will praise him. It is a triumphant declaration of joy and as a missionary it interests me because it has relevance for world mission. Look at verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. Why? For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. And in verse 31, they will proclaim his righteousness for he has done it. Mission accomplished. In Hebrews, the writer there, chapter 12 and verse 2, describes Jesus as the author and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And this shout of triumph that comes in the second part of this psalm, 
the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 2 and verse 12 identifies with the Lord Jesus himself where he says I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation I will sing your praises but the fact is at the height of his suffering God's word and this old psalm seemingly may have been the only intimation that our Lord had as he hung there on the cross that anything glorious could come out of his suffering. And yet the last verse is in parallel with those last words from the cross. It is finished. He's done it. Mission accomplished. For Christ has been made the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but for the sins of the whole world. But I want to just think for a moment quietly this evening about those words my God, my God why have you forsaken me? When you think that those words came from the lips of the Son of God hanging on the cross you confront a profound mystery in the first place how could God the Father forsake God the Son how could God the Son feel that he had been forsaken by God the Father and if he was the Son of God how could he not have understood what was going on? You see, at his baptism, the heavens had opened, hadn't they? And a voice had come from heaven, and his disciples had heard it too. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then you remember as they stood outside the graveside of Lazarus, John eleven forty two. Jesus had offered a prayer to his Father in the hearing of his disciples. And he says in that prayer, Father, I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, the fact that heaven listened when he cried out was to be the proof to everyone of who he was. God's anointed one, his Messiah. But now at this hour of supreme need when he had cried out to the Father in John 17 Father the hour has come glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. Where was the glory? What did he see of the glory as he hung there on that cross? What was the proof of heaven's approval? There was nothing but darkness over the face of the earth. Black despair. And the heavens were like brass. And there was no response. Oh my God, says the psalmist, verse 2, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night and I am, I am not silent. How could God forsake him? How could God let him suffer? how could God let him be exposed publicly to such shame if you look down through that psalm verses 3 to 5 he speaks of God's faithfulness and the fact that he delivered so many in the past 
verse 4, in you our fathers put their trust, they trusted in you and you delivered them. Whereas the stark reality of his experience at that moment could not have been more different. There was no hint of deliverance. Heaven was totally silent. And if heaven was silent, the noise around the cross was deafening. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. And when you come to verse 8, can't you just hear the rhythm of the mocking voices so wonderfully captured in the music of Handel's Messiah? He trusted in God. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Where was God when he needed him? How could it be said that God still delighted in him if he forsook the Son? How could he turn his face his own beloved son. Just look at verses 14 through to 18 there. What a graphic description we have of the physical agonies of crucifixion. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up, verse 15, like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth and you lay me in the dust of death. You can almost feel the dryness the agony of it verse 16 they pierce my hands and feet verse 17 I count all my bones verse 18 they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing and then you find in verses 12, 13 and 16 he's hemmed in by evil beings and evil powers many bulls surround me strong bulls of Bashan encircle me verse 13 roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me verse 16 dogs have surrounded me a band of evil men has encircled me what a description of the agony of the crucifixion I suppose crucifixion must rank with the most sadistic, barbaric, and savage forms of death that have ever been devised. Through the centuries, artists have helped us to see something of the physical horror of the crucifixion, and perhaps more recently, Mel Gibson's film, The Passion, has been yet another attempt. But you know, there is a sense in which it is just not possible to portray the real horror of what was happening at Calvary. And I believe that it is within these words which are so hard in many ways to understand we have an intimation of what the real agony of Calvary was all about. I believe that that cry overshadows every other aspect of the cross. A cry that goes to the very depths and the heart of the atonement because it is a cry that forces us to think, if I dare say it, something unthinkable. It forces us to think of disruption in the Godhead. In the Apostles' Creed we hear these words, He descended into hell. And I believe that this is where we may be touching on what is contained within the meaning of those words. He descended into hell. Now I know it's not PC, not popular to speak about hell. But when we read the Gospels, we have to face the sobering fact that it was Jesus 
Jesus, the Son of God, who was the most qualified to speak on the subject, who made the most frequent reference to it, and also gave us the severest warnings that we must take seriously. And I believe that in this cry of abandonment, we have a glimpse of the essence of what that hell is. An agony of body and mind, an abyss of abandonment, dereliction, separation from God. My dear friends, there is something here that we need to take very seriously. We need to understand that those who choose in this life to live without God will find that to have that choice ratified for eternity is what hell is all about. Separation from God. Separation from the one who is our life. And yet, when we think of Jesus in this context, we're out of our depth. How could God the Son be separated from God the Father? How could Jesus, if he was the Son of God, how could he ever come to ask why? How could he not have known why? It's in another psalm, Psalm 66 and verse 18, that we hear these words, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You see, the Bible is very consistent on some things, and the one thing about which it is totally consistent is this, that sin separates and cuts us off from Almighty God. And yet when you say that, this mystery deepens because Jesus was sinless, so how could he, of all people, be ever separated from the Father? And I think it is in Paul's particular passage where he's speaking about the doctrine of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5 that we get the clue. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this in six words, He, that is Jesus, was made sin for us. Kistamaker, a commentator, says in his commentary on Hebrews, because of our sins, Christ stood before God as the most wicked of all transgressors. It's that that goes to the heart of the atonement. In other words, in order to become our Saviour, Jesus was made the very thing that cuts us off from God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have all missed the standard of that righteousness of God. Now if he was made sin, if that is what happened to Jesus as he hung on the cross, then there are consequences that inevitably flowed from that. Sin always exposes us to the judgment of God. Sin always separates us from God in all his holiness. Therefore, as the one who was made sin for us, Jesus was exposed to the righteous wrath of a holy God. And that cry of abandonment was real. We get to see the enormity of sin in that cry. In that he descended into the separation of hell. And for Jesus to be my saviour, 
and for Jesus to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That was what was involved. And yet we pause and we ask another question. Didn't Jesus go to that cross willingly? Didn't he say, I lay down my life for the sheep? No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Did Jesus not know from the very beginning of his mission that to be made sin would evolve that incredible experience of abandonment? Did he not understand the horror of it all? And did he not visualize it coming when he agonized in the garden of Gethsemane and sweat as it were great drops of blood and said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He knew. He saw what was coming. So if he knew and if he saw what was coming, why does he ask why? And of course on holy ground here we grope our way for an answer. Might I suggest that while he knew from all eternity that to be made sin would involve that dereliction, from all eternity he'd never experienced such a thing. He was always the delight of his father in the bosom of the father. And the horror as he experienced it was the ultimate horror as he descended into hell. But why did he cry out as if he didn't understand? It's almost unthinkable. But if the punishment that we deserve for our sin is eternal separation from God, hell, what the Bible refers to as the wages of sin, that death, that ultimate death, then if Jesus' identification with us for our redemption was to be absolutely complete, and if he was to take the punishment that we deserved, then it must have involved him in some way of experiencing the very punishment that we deserve for our sin and being separated from the Father and being so totally identified with us. Was it not also that his understanding of what he was going through at that moment in some way became clouded, in some way that we will never understand? In other words, his identification with us in all our sinfulness was so total that as he experienced that separation, he could only cry out in agony, my God, my God, why? So totally did he identify with us in our sinfulness. It was made sin, but it wasn't role play, it wasn't just words, it was real. That is what being made sin for me involved. And at that point of time as he hung on the cross for those three hours of darkness, he was not just separated from the Father, but he was separated from understanding fully what he was going through with nothing but that old song, Psalm 22, from God's Word, from which to cling. You see, to have gone through it all, conscious that everything would just turn out all right in the end. 
might in some way have compromised the reality of his identification with our humanity. Might have meant that in some way he failed to plumb the depths of the horror of sin as he descended into hell. That abyss of separation. Some of you will be familiar with the notes from Holyrood Abbey Church. Our dear brother Jim Philip. Jim has written about this particular psalm and this particular point in our Lord's consciousness and he says it was there at that point where the Son of God lost the last final consciousness of the Father's love there that atonement was made and pardon bought and won for us you see the writer to the Hebrews puts it this way Jesus was made sin for us so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Not just physical death. You see, there is something far worse than physical death. It's what the Bible calls the wages of sin or the second death. Separation from God. That's why for the Christian who has accepted Christ as his Savior, death has lost its sting we can say with the confidence of the psalmist in the next psalm though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil for your rod and thy staff they comfort me and in the book of Revelation it says blessed are those who share in the first resurrection those who have been born again by the spirit of God over such the second death has no power all of us walk through that valley of death we know what it is to fear that but we have no fear of that second death and this is our comfort as believers you see it's wrong to think that Jesus just died on the cross as if he were a martyr for the cause if it had been nothing more than a martyr's death and I would try to say that reverently it would hardly have been noteworthy there have been many martyrs who have trod that path with courage Jesus did so much more and through that appalling death he tasted death and in fact he put death to death it took it beyond the realm of the physical and if I can say it reverently it took him to hell and back we need to be careful how we use those words there is only one who has ever gone to hell and back that is Jesus no one else could make that return journey for the rest the trip to hell is a one way ticket but Jesus came back as the first fruits of them that sleep that's why Paul could cry out in 1 Corinthians 15 those wonderful verses where he shouts at death and he says death You've been swallowed up with victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. Why? He gives us the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus took that journey that was mine. The sinless one became my sin. 
the one who never committed evil became my evil you see on that cross he took to himself all I am as a fallen creature all that is rotten in me all that is evil in me all my polluted thoughts all my guilt all that is shameful in my past all that haunts my conscience all that would humble and paralyze me all that would cut me off from a holy God Jesus became that he was made sin for me no wonder the prophet Isaiah in the servant song speaking of Christ's sufferings and those who watched him says that as they looked at him they were appalled. Why? Because his appearance was so transformed. They were appalled because his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. This meant that the one who was in fact the imprint, the exact imprint of the glory of God, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, was disfigured until he wasn't even more recognizable. Alec Motier in his commentary on Isaiah on that particular verse, he says, there was revulsion. Those who saw him stepped back in horror, not only saying, is this the servant, but is this human? loathsome thing that Jesus became on the cross was me in all that putrid rottenness of my character the sin that marred the divine image in us Jesus became you see it's on the cross that I get to see the horror of my sin. It is on the cross that I understand the penalty that I deserve. And yet, as we sang, it is on the cross that wrath and mercy meet. And the guilty world is washed by love's pure stream. For on the cross at that moment, God saw me at my worst. But on the cross of that moment, God loved me best and most. We quoted Peter as saying that through the prophet, the Spirit of God predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow. On the day of Pentecost, dear Peter stands up having witnessed that glory in the resurrection. And he gives this testimony. He said, God has raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Why? Because it was not possible for death to keep its hold on him. Because he was the sinless son of God. That's why Paul says to Timothy, God, our Saviour Jesus Christ has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. You see, he conquered death so totally. He's overcome that fear of death. Hard to portray these truths. Dear C.S. Lewis, you're going to get his screw tape letters. I hope all of you are experts in the Narnia stories, are you? Some are nodding, some are falling asleep. If you're old enough to read, read them to your children. If you're a little older, like some of us, and a little wrinklier, read them to your grandchildren. They're wonderful stories, and the great story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. 
where the Lord Jesus Christ in that allegory is, is portrayed as this majestic, grand, golden lion. I'm sure some of you know the story. Powerful symbolism. Edmund has been a traitor to his brothers and sisters. And he's been caught by the wicked witch who claims his life. And at the moment when it looks as if that child is going to be slaughtered for his treachery, Aslan steps forward and offers his life in the place of that horrid traitor. And you have this very moving scene where the wicked witch claims the life of Aslan. And Aslan dies at the hand of the witch and the evil hordes in an atmosphere of black despair. And Susan and Lucy, two of the girls, watch with horror as the dead Aslan lies out on a great stone table. And then they feel cold. Their beloved lion has died. And they go for a short walk. And as their backs are turned, they suddenly hear a deafening crack. The stone table of the law is broken. Turn around. To their horror, they discover she's not there. It's gone. Then suddenly their despair turns to joy as this majestic creature bounds back to them. They can't believe their eyes. What does all this mean? says Susan. It means, said Aslan, that although the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. A man called Bancroft wrote these words, When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because my sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. And God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The law remains that the wages of sin is death. Either I accept Christ's death in my place or I face that second death and the separation it involves. If by grace I have made Christ my Lord and my Saviour, then in an amazing way his death becomes mine. Jesus has been to hell and back for me 
death now works backwards. It has lost its sting. But, if Jesus is not my Lord, then I have to face the sting of death alone. And as I face it, I would only have a one-way ticket. It would be too late then for me to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know Christ as your Lord and Saviour? can do tonight. Let's pray.